thank you all for, for, for coming to hear what we have to say about academic mobility and or beyond, beyond mobility and Brexit. What I'm going to do is um, draw up, focus on some of the points that have already been made by Terry and also Anne and, and look at another dimension of academic mobility. I think a lot has, has already been said this afternoon, has been said about numbers and resources. Terry shared with us some numbers about um, the numbers of international academic staff um, in the United Kingdom. But I think that it's worth... Um, I think that debate obscures other important dimensions which has had less attention so far. And I, I'm, through my set of comments, I'm going to raise... Um, think about what we mean by, a little bit, the public role of the university and question if this is something that has been undervalued by the higher education and research sector um, and has that thereby left the higher education and research se sector somewhat exposed in the wake of the Brexit vote. So while not um, denying the importance of, uh, of, of the free movement of labour, giving people, be they academic staff and researchers and educators and students, the right to work, live and study across the European Union. I think that it's really, really important to, to try and get a handle on other aspects of mobility. And here I want to think about the sort of free movement of ideas across porous borders. It's not, it, it, it's that, it's the sort of openness of borders which has allowed people, but people with those ideas to move and the interplay of institutions and ideas as, 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 as laid out by Anne has provided a framework or what Lyndall Roper has called uh, the, the possibility for ecosystems of higher education and research to grow, to be nurtured, to develop and it, it isn't in a neutral playing field, it's not we, we, we shouldn't underestimate how easy, while, we should be, while the UK should definitely take the opportunities that are presented by extending relationships beyond the European Union, should not underestimate the importance that the European project and that interplay of institutions and ideas has played in enabling that free movement of ideas across borders. And the other point I wanted to stress, and I think is really important, is thinking about the democratic values that underpin higher education and research spaces. And again, perhaps something that, that we as academics and educators and, and, and um, in, in higher education have perhaps underestimated. So I'm going to start by saying something very briefly about why, as we said in our abstract, why the sector has found itself so vulnerable um, in the post-Brexit um, um, period. So as it will come as no surprise to people sitting in the room that 90% of the sector voted to remain, and, and, and of course there was no plan B, no one had a plan B, <laughs> remain as leave as nobody, and nor did the higher education sector. And I think that um, what has sort of made this equally uh, vulnerable time for the higher education research sector is that it's an area that struggled to gain public support. It's not particularly a vote, it's not particularly a vote winner in elections. Um, I, this is not a place to talk about what caused the, um, the, the, the what, what, to explain the outcomes of the last general election. I don't particularly, personally, I don't think it was about promises to take tuition fees away. On the whole, I think higher education research is, it, it's, um, bubbles underneath the surface and it's not something that particularly rises to the top of the political agenda. The um, higher education sector in the UK is also in huge flux at the moment. We've had the recent introduction of the Teaching Excellence Framework, um, 
uh, where there's a funding review um, about to get underway. And so there's a lot of uncertainty across the sector as well about the sort of about the frameworks in which they'll be operating going forward. The uncertainty that Anne and Terry spoke about, um, given the embedded, embeddedness of our sector in European networks and, on, and the uncertain Brexit outcomes, further amplifies that sense of vulnerability. And finally, I think there's some very profound questions about identity that, that, the, that the higher education sector is facing. There are those that would argue that the that sitting alongside a valuable um, ambition to rebalance the relationship between research and higher education um, through TEF, that there's also other drivers which speak more to the marketization, commercialization of the higher education sector. And we've had quite a lot of evidence since the referendum that this is quite a strong voice in government, that the, the support for greater commercialization of the higher education sector, higher education research, higher education research coming in as service clauses in future free trade agreements. And, and only last week, um, Joe Johnson at the Hefty conference was speaking about how the higher education sector needed to sort of get more involved in consultancy work. Um, so all that sort of make, put, posing very big, I think, questions about well, what, what is a, about identity in a higher education sector and what, what, what are we doing and who are we? And are, are we... Are we um, do we risk becoming a, an extension of, a, of, of government, industrial and commercial policy? And, and what happens to all those other disciplines that, that don't fit so neatly into that type of a framework? So I don't think I will spend very much time on this slide. I think it's known to all of you and um, Anne has uh, made some points here already. We, we know that Britain is a very popular destination for international students. There's fair enough amount of research, education research which underlines the, 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 the power of learning in a diverse classroom, learning from the uh, multiple experiences and backgrounds of different students. Um, there's evidence demonstrating the improved employability skills of British students from studying overseas. And, and, and also, I think, the, the, the importance, coming back to that values point, of, of building an engaged, active citizenry to work and live and make a difference in the 21st century. All these things are, up, are, are potentially at stake um, in, in this rather uncertain terrain. Um, the point about research has already been made, so I won't revisit it again. So, so what I want to do in the last, how long have I got? Eight minutes? About two minutes. Okay. Um, I want to sort of just um, make a few points about what I see as um, an area that that the that we need to refocus on and ask ourselves questions about what is the public role of the university and is it time for the university sector to to, to think about reclaiming some of that public space and 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 and, and, and mobilizing mobilizing more actively around um, championing that critical role. I would argue that through educating students. Um, the, and educating our students in modes of inquiry that encourage them to be critical, that encourage them to be rigorous, that encourage them to be open to new ideas. We, w w the higher education sector is, is playing a role as a guarantor of democratic values. Their core task is to educate much of a society's youth, 
and I, I think this is absolutely, and I think this is an absolutely critical, um, we're at a critical point in history where, where this, this, this um, aspect of the university's work should not be underestimated. And I think we need to be thinking not just about the students who are, who, who come inside our doors, but also more broadly, uh, our job is to educate society's youth, 50% of whom now are in higher education. But, but, but perhaps we should be thinking about engaging more with, with people outside the hallowed um, ivory towers of the university. Uh, we are educating our students also so that they can go out with those critical thinking skills and, and through their engagement with interdisciplinarity and disciplinarity to be effective citizens and effective participants in, in the workforce of the 21st century. If we think of research, and perhaps, and, I, and I'm a great believer that undergraduates, people in all stages of higher education should be educated and carrying out research, and in a way that's what links these two things together, is that universities are also, the higher education space is also there to shape policy processes with evidence-based research and argumentation. And I didn't talk about vulnerability, but um, not far after, not long after the, this aspect of vulnerability, but not long after the referendum, we were told by a certain Michael Gove that we were fed up with experts, or maybe it actually it was during the re referendum that we were fed up with experts. Um, and so we, we, we've, <coughs> even in the context of, um, policy-based evidence and research, we, we, we find ourselves slightly, um, at least under, uh, under a shadow, and I think we need, to f we need to push back. And then obviously there's the sort of broader aim of pushing back the boundaries of knowledge, pure research, building towards the future. This is another critical public role of the university. And, and I would argue that this is, given the, the vulnerabilities that the higher education sector is facing, um, <coughs> at the current time, it's actually particularly important that we agree on what we understand to be the public role of the university and, and some critical red lines that we feel the, that, that, that we believe the higher education space should not um, compromise on and, and think about how the multi-layered actors in the higher education space can work together to, 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 to achieve a positive outcome for Brexit in terms of higher education and research. So the short-term tangible aims, some of these map onto the recommendations of the Education Select Committee, um, the certainty to EU citizens who currently study, work and live in the UK. Well, that goes without saying, and frankly, we should have done that a year and a half ago. I don't think we have, I think we lost a lot of goodwill by not doing that sooner. And as Anne said, I'm sure a deal will be reached, but what has been lost in the last 18 months we clearly should be insisting on continued mobility post-Brexit for EU staff and students. And alongside that, the easing of visa procedures. Um, you know, there's reports in the press just last week about anecdotal at this point, not anecdotal evidence of visa procedures being slowed down, um, appointments to, for... Um, staff from the EU being held up by, by difficulties in, in the Home Office. And I think that it's that type of response goes against that sort of democratic openness which lies at the heart of higher education. And, and, and those who think it will be easy to replace the EU with a broader set of international relationships, um, we shouldn't underestimate how that, the time those relationships take to build uh, and also um, 
the fact that there are visa limitations too on all those people who, who, who live beyond Europe who might want to come and work and live and study here in the UK and, and Prime Minister Modi didn't hesitate to point that out to Theresa May when she visited India um, last um, November trying to drum up support for a new free trade agreement and Modi was very quick to point out that the visa problem, you know, so do we want to be pushing the government to revisit the post-work um, visa um, period to allow people to come here and study and, and, and work for a while, the sort of capstone to their, to their education. I, I certainly think we also should be pushing for continued membership in EU programs and networks and, and whether that be through associate membership or sectoral agreement, I think we can be reasonably confident that, that some sort of agreement will be reached. And then I think there's some more medium-term areas which are less tangible but equally important for the, for the higher education sector to think about in terms of its role as educators and researchers but also in terms of its public role. How can the higher education sector strike the delicate balance between accountability and autonomy? Um, five minutes, that's fine, yeah, thanks. Which is, a, which is, a, which is something that um, is also under threat in the eyes of some people given the changing policy environment of, of the higher education and research sector. And also how, how can we work to protect universities at, as institutions which serve as guarantors of de democratic values and also laboratories of ideas across disciplines. I think um, the sort of notion that we have a pecking order of disciplines and that some disciplines are worth funding and others are less important and so don't need nurturing in the same way and those disciplines that, 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 are, that are worthy are those that can be incorporated or integrated directly into government's commercial and industrial policy. I noticed that um, in Theresa May's 12-point um, negotiation document um, that was published in January, she did speak about innovation and science but it was again, it was quite a narrow conceptualization of what of what, of what, what, what is worthy science, and I think we see that discourse coming out of government, and it, we need to try and counter it. Um, mobility of ideas means mobility of all ideas, not just science, technology, however important those are as well. So I have a penultimate slide here. Oh, two more. This is just a sort of, um, if we are going to establish some, some red lines for the higher education sector to, 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 to fight for. And of course, I'm not trying to suggest nothing has been going on. I know in my institution, our institution alone, there's quite a lot of lobbying going on, but it tends to be in behind closed doors in Westminster. It's not a, it's not a public type of interaction. It's not transparent. Um, it's senior leaderships talking to people in government. And I, 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 think, I think every higher education institution has a role to play. I think this is something Anne and I both agree on. And I think we need to be finding um, channels to express public voice. Then there are obviously the range of higher education and research associations in the UK and Europe, uh, many of whom have actively entered the debate. And, and uh, Anne and I have been working on a book chapter looking at the European perspective on Brexit and higher education and research and and, and Anne has sort of pointed in that research to, to, to what Euro European associations and European universities see as a potential great loss to, with the exiting of the UK from, from, from networks and programs and so on. We have our students and student organizations. Um, 
parliamentary select committees and also the European Parliament for Culture and Education. All these actors have a role to play in securing that our red lines are honoured and respected. So I suppose um, my final slide and then a final slide to bring Anne and our points together is really the, a, a call for the higher education sector to demonstrate more strongly its public role. And I was rather heartened um, to see that our new director, Minou Shafiq, who just took over um, a month ago in one of her first public um, statements, spoke about the importance of the public role of the university. And, and I found that heartening coming from an institution, Chatham House Rules, um, which seems to have been moving very much in a, it ha has, has, has underplayed the foundations upon which the LSE was founded in 1895, which was to work for the betterment of society. And I, I, I was very pleased to see that our new director was, was, was recognizing the importance of the public role of the university. We need to work in partnership with our students to achieve this. We need to continue processes of curriculum reform, finding ways to link education and research so that we're building those critical, scholarly, rigorous, open thinkers democratic thinkers, I would argue. And I think, and obviously there's huge variation across the sector, but we need to do more to engage with local communities so that they, we don't feel so exposed, so they understand the value of um, the higher education sector. And, for, and, and, and I think we need to find, explore ways to have increased solidarity uh, with the European higher education arena more broadly. So, so what we've tried to suggest in this talk this is my last minute, is, um, it, is basically that Brexit was a political shock. Um, and it still is a political shock. It's led to great uncertainty. We don't know how the policy process is going, fully going to pan out. Um, and we don't know what the impacts are going to be on higher education and research. But whenever there's a policy shock or a political shock, this opens up opportunities as well as challenges. What we've tried to suggest is that we need to look at academic mobility moving beyond notions of counting numbers which are important and resources to a much more multi-layered understanding of academic mobility uh, and seeing that that academic mobility has been embedded in the European project and, and, and incrementally developed through painstaking negotiations and agreements and also that mobility encompasses more than just the people but the, but the circulation of ideas and values and, 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 and at heart democratic values. And, I, and the, finally, we've tried to suggest that, that, that given the challenges facing the higher education sector, that, that the importance of a more sustained drive to, to un, enhance the public role of the university. So thank you.